0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Dr. Clarissa Pincola Estes, an internationally recognized scholar, award winning poet, diplomat, senior Jungian psychoanalyst, and contadora, keeper of the old stories in the Latina tradition. In addition to her international bestseller, Women Who Run with the Wolves, Dr. Estes is deputy managing editor and columnist writing on politics. Spirituality and Culture at the news blog, themoderatevoice.com, and a columnist at the National Catholic Reporter online. She is currently teaching a new series of online events through Sounds True on Mother Night, Learning to See in the Dark. Here's a conversation, a kind of preview about this new series, a conversation I'd like to call Diamonds in the Dark with Dr. Clarissa Pinkola-Estes.
1: Hi, Timmy.
0: Hi, Clarissa, and welcome to Insights at the Edge.
1: Hi, thank you.
0: Now, I was thinking, previous to this conversation, the first time that you and I were on the radio together, that it was actually more than two decades ago. That's true. 22 years ago. That's true. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Anyway, wonderful to once again be talking to you, interviewing you, And hearing what you have to say. Thank you, Tammy. What a long period of time, 22 years.
1: I know. I know. You were a young little kid then. I remember. (laughs) I remember um, your headphones were bigger than you were, actually. (laughs) Nowadays, headphones are little teeny-tiny things.
0: (laughs) Now, on this occasion, we're talking about Mother Night, which is a, a new online event series with Sounds True, Mother Night, Learning to See in the Dark. And to begin, I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners what you mean by Mother Night.
1: Well, actually, it's an idea that you and I have talked about for almost 20 years. The concept of a idea that many things that bring creative life and healing and ideas, innovations, inventions and solutions to real down-to-earth issues and challenges in life actually come out of the dark they come out of nowhere seemingly they come from over your shoulder they come from just out of the corner of your eye they come from the unconscious they come from the part of the psyche that stores not just uh, quirks and oddities and forgotten shreds of memory and so forth but also stores great gifts of insight, intuition, knowledge that's some people would call uncanny only because it doesn't appear to come right from the forefront of the mind and the concept of mother night is a metaphor for the intuitive psyche for the phenomenal power that each person is born with to know without exactly knowing literally how to proceed where to go next um by hook or by crook by hunches Um, by being guided by dreams at night, by listening to stories in which mystical components are buried that give direction to the hero or the heroine that can be brought down to earth in day-to-day life and followed as well for all of us.
0: How does listening to a story help somebody access what's in their unconscious, what's in the darkness?
1: Well, the concept of the collective unconscious is that we all have similar grid within the psyche that is a storyline and it's been proposed by many people um aboriginal people in particular long before freud and Jung and adler and other people proposed it that we all have a heroic myth of some sort of heroic storyline that we're born with and we gradually live it out and we meet people and see signposts and listen to dreams in order to be able to understand, at a deeper level, the meaning of different crooks and turns in our lives, different things that appear before us, without us necessarily knowing right away how to deal with them, handle them, exploit them, and create from them, and that the unconscious, the collective unconscious, a pattern of story is within each of us, so that when we listen, To stories, mythologies, legends, folk tales, any kind of story that has the beginning, a middle, and an end, including a crisis of some sort in which the hero or the heroine then does some grand thing, usually at great cost or often by losing first and then later being able to win back the treasured thing, whatever it was that was lost. That when we listen to stories, that part of our psyche that is the story myth-making part of our lives listens very closely that the ego which is more concerned with factual things and desires and so forth literally is bypassed when story is told and that the soul is listening instead the soul who is you might say the progenitor and the broadcasting Station and the transmission station within the psyche that can see, feel, and hear, and interpret the lines of story as they're heard and apply them to one's own life, one's personal life, in a down-to-earth way. You'll hear me say down-to-earth quite a bit in my work because there's a lot of fatuous ideas about what mythical things mean, but my senses and my experience, clinically but personally as well, is that until you can bring it down to earth, it's just a pretty thing or a scary thing. But once you bring it down to earth, it becomes something that you can turn one way or the other and find its usefulness for your life, to enrich your life, deepen your life, understand more about your life, penetrate the meaning of the thing in your life, and so on. So the storylines of heroes and heroines, there's always a conflict. You know, people might start out all happy-go-lucky, or they might start out miserable. They're orphaned parents have been killed the house has been burned down and nothing is left except a little child on the road by themselves or they can be born into a castle and they can have all the finest of everything but eventually in the storyline something occurs usually something magical something mysterious something very much out of the ordinary so that you have a talking fish that shows up in the fisherman's wife story for instance who promises the old man who is living in poverty with his wife that he can wish for anything he wants and so the magic begins by some hour of this world something that's symbolic of something in the unconscious and when we listen to stories like that at the very moment that that fish shows up and talks and promises if you let me go i'll grant you a wish we realize that in our own lives there has been not just one moment but probably many moments like that where we're asked to make a bargain we're asked to give up something in order to gain something and maybe we will or maybe we won't or maybe we'll do it as the fisherman does he says oh no oh, it's all right he's a very kindly person he says no no it's all right you, you, you i'll let you go you, you don't have to give me anything but when he goes home and he tells his wife that he has met a talking fish who promised him a wish the wife goes crazy and she says how could you how dare you look how we live we live hand to mouth we have nothing and when the person when all of us listen to a story like that there's something in us that knows exactly how that wife is feeling because someplace in the unconscious in ourselves in our own story in our own myth of our own lives there's something in us too that says I should have it better how dare you pass up any opportunity people should give me things I mean look at how I have to live I mean this is horrible Mm, in analytical psychology and in the kind of psychology that I follow there is um, the idea that if you would take the wife and the husband in the fisherman's wife story and the fish also that they all represent a part of the psyche a part that is mystical magical, really can help to bring things to fruition. That would be the fish, but it lives at great depth, and is rarely seen. And also that there is a person who is good-hearted, who wants to be a good person and tries very hard to be in the world, but is not quite made for the world of competition and argumentation and debate, who would rather just live easier and more calmly. And then there's another part of the psyche, that is crabby all the time, that feels like it is unhonored, and that it is also uh, without power. And so there you have the conflict of many, many, many people's life stories, which is the one who is probably, might say, the most valuable of all, the treasure that lives just out of sight. There is the one who isn't lazy but sort of passes it off doesn't recognize that having relationship with that treasure in whatever way would be engendering of something greater would create a third thing would make something happen that would be useful and good and then there's always of course the eternally crappy one which you know there's some days when i think i was just you know born in a bad mood because it's so it's so pervasive but the fact of the matter is is that that is the least developed in the psyche, and that's what sets up the whole conflict.
0: So in listening to a story like that, Clarissa, I mean, I, I totally see what you mean in terms of the ego part of the listener being uh, lulled to sleep, and this other part of me starts listening that sees images. And what what I'm curious about is for you as really one of the the world's most respected storytellers. What happens for you when a story is coming through you? What's that like?
1: The best way I could... That's a good question. Um, It's one I've never been asked before. I think that in that moment, I do not feel that I'm visible. Only the story is visible. I cannot... Say that I'm thinking about what the next line of the story is because that's not how it happens. Um, I can't say that I planned out what the story, how it will unfold, other than its basic bones beforehand. And during, I have the same sensation that a lot of people have, or describe in meditation or in deep prayer, that I often don't realize how much time has passed during the telling of the story. And I'm often surprised that either it's a short, amount of time, or much, much longer than I had perceived. So I would say that I would belong to the tradition of storytellers who um, tell from, hopefully, from the deepest sense of telling, which is not an ego presentation of, listen to this wonderful story, isn't it charming, and isn't it interesting? It has more to do with my soul speaking to the souls of others. And in those moments I would say that it's like a story to go invisible by, that the teller is no longer visible. You know you might be able to see them and certainly hear them of course. But they're not present in the way that they are if you're going to, you know, go look up the phone number of the pizza parlor and you know, order pizza with pineapple on it. You know?
0: Mhm. And as we talk about this new online series, Mother Night, learning to see in the dark, I mean, in a sense, what you're saying about your the way you approach telling a story, it's a kind of seeing in the dark. What what I'm curious about is, how can you teach other people to do this? Can you teach other people to see in the dark?
1: Yes, of course. Um, because everyone's born with that innate sensitivity of perception, of a, it's an uncanny kind of perception. It knows sometimes what people are going to say before they say it it knows when someone has the intention of kissing you before they even make the move toward kissing you they know by looking at the chins of their children what mood their children are in when they come through the door at the end of the day they have a sense about which way to go left or right on a road it literally that is going to lead them toward instead of away from wherever it is they're meant to go, that these intuitions, the intuitional sense, is born into everyone, and it has many different layers to it. Some of it has to do with what to do to heal yourself, what to create that will have reach to it, what to say to people that will calm them and help them and heal them, and how to touch people, physically touch them, in ways that will awaken them and cause them to feel sheltered cherished, and so on and so forth. And there are a lot of people in our world who have injured instinct, injured intuition, there's no doubt, because our culture, particularly our culture, um, is a highly competitive culture and is very interested in making people into competitors. And um, there are lots of you know, cultural reasons for that that have to do with um, making money and you know, being the best of the, whatever, you know, high jumpers or the long distance runners or whatever it is. However, the soul is not particularly interested in those things. Uh, The soul is interested in having a relationship with all the aspects of a person's life and being present to it and being consulted about it. And that's what usually lies in the dark. That fish in that story is the one who knows, is the la que sabe, the one who knows, about which way to go next about what to do next about what to offer next and when that's injured in a person as later because the fish is asked by the fisherman's wife to keep giving bigger and bigger things she makes the husband go back out onto the open sea call up the fish again and tell him that she wants to progressively she wants to be king because they live in such a hovel so he resists asking but she forces him. She says she won't love him anymore. And so he goes back out onto the sea, calls up the fish. The fish says, go home. It's already granted. He goes home. There's the palace. There's the courtiers. There's the jesters. There's the soldiers. And there's his wife with her great big crown on it, And she's king. But the wife isn't happy. And she sends him back again. And she says, go tell that fish that I want to be pope. And the old man demures and he tries to talk her out of it but there's no use she's in so she's the ego she says i must be important i must be big i must be i must be competitive i must be better than others and etc of course she's going down the wrong path no one no soul can exist with an ego like that it will run away from it it will have what we call and what we'll talk about in mother night is susto which is a condition in curanderismo the spanish word is susto which means the soul literally is shocked out of the person or is repulsed by the person's actions and so moves off to the side a bit all the way too far away and has to be called back again in order for the soul to be reunited with the rest of the psyche so that it can see through the eyes of the soul feel through the feelings of the soul think through the soul's thoughts that enrich a person's life instead of making it just a shallow egotistical thing so in the story the fisherman's wife eventually sends the husband out onto the open sea again, telling him he has to tell the fish she wants to be God, and the old man is beside himself. You can't be God. Yes, I can. The fish said it could grant any wish. I want to be God. And so the fisherman rose out in a huge storm that comes up the sides of the boat, into the boat. And is washing him practically out of the boat and he calls up the fish in the middle of the storm flounder flounder in the sea my wife Nor would have me speak with thee and the fish comes up on the tip of its fin on a dark green wave but it's bleeding it's bleeding bright red blood all the way down the green wave in the middle of the storm and the fish says what now and the old man says my wife wants to be god and the fish says tell her she has asked too much and the fish slides down the green wave all bloody and falls down under the water and the old man rows home and the storm calms and there is his old wife and she's back in the hovel again and everything is just as it was at the beginning of the tale the concept of the soul being torn or hurt or bleeding when the ego demands too much too much over and over again going in the wrong direction going towards self-importance self-aggrandization caring too much about what others think is what is the symptom of broken intuition of this fabulous gift that's given whole at birth into every soul, to every being on earth, and somehow usually because the culture, the schooling, etc. has cut it out of them or broken it or shamed it or said that it is absurd and it is not substantive enough that it now goes up on the wave bleeding and says you can ask no more of You can ask no more. It's over. And the person returns to their previous impoverished state of thinking and being. Um, Jung's idea was that uh, a deflation, a serious deflation, will follow a grotesque inflation in a person's ideas um, that are beyond the reach of the soul in one sense and not funded by the soul, not rooted in the soul. So seeing in the dark means, in one way, that you would always see that the roots of anything that are worth doing, the roots of anything that are worth protesting, resisting, creating, making, forging, the roots are always in the waters of the soul, always. The minute that they're only in the layer of the ego, people are incredibly unoriginal, uncreative and in many ways turn into automatons who are striving only to look like something rather than to actually be something at depth.
0: so I can imagine someone listening saying, well, you know, I I fall somewhere in the middle. I feel part of my soul intact, but part of my soul having left. And, uh, you know, I know that from my own competitiveness and ego-drivenness, etc., so I'm someplace in between. What would... You mentioned curanderismo. What, what, what would... How could curanderismo... First of all, explain to our listeners what that is, but how could it help me? How would it approach my situation? Well,
1: one of our one of our sessions um, during the Mother Night web event is going to be on curanderismo. Curanderismo simply means this. It's, the, it's one of the ancient healing arts that come from the Latino people. It appears... That it may actually have its origins partly in Sephardic Judaism that was carried from old Spain into the so-called new world in Mexico. And that it also was melded with healing traditions from the African slaves that were brought to the east coast of Yucatan of Mexico and also melded together with the indigenous practices of the over 500 tribal groups that were in Mexico prior to the conquest of which there were less than 200 left after the conquest but the healing principles revolve around the idea that each person is born with a convener a knowledgeable being a la que sabe one who knows at the center of the psyche or of their whole life and that this is partly divine and partly human. And it corresponds certainly also with various religious views, that there is something in each person that is a spark of God, or Creator as we call it, and that there is also a part that is most definitely human. And that the human part is not supposed to equip the divine part. The contrary. The divine leads, the human follows like that. So curanderismo is a set of symptoms and diagnoses that have to do with the condition of the soul and have to do with how the soul can be tied up, blindfolded, uh, set aside, uh, wander off. Um, For instance, um, one of the conditions is called malojo. Malojo, two words, mal, bad, ojo, eye. A bad eye means that you look at life with cynicism, that you are a disappointed idealist and you've decided to take cynicism on as your protective armor. And that because you do this, it literally blinds the soul. It puts like a blindfold over the eyes of the soul so that it cannot see anymore. It cannot speak to you about what it sees because the cynicism of the ego, which means people are not what they say they are. Healing is cannot be achieved. Usefulness cannot be gotten. Meaning is meaningless, etc. That's a form of cynicism. There are many aspects of cynicism. But essentially what it means to have lost your belief in the goodness of humans and of the soul and of creator altogether in one place. And curanderismo suggests cures for that, suggests healings for that. And just like in Buddhism, just like in... Catholicism and Judaism and Muslimism, there are practices that a person undertakes daily in order to recenter themselves always in the greater self, in the alma, in the soul, rather than letting the ego, is a little el mono, the monkey, run off with everything every day. And that practice is the most important thing that a person can do because the ego is, as you know, attracted in all of us to the bright, shiny things in life. Uh, every Sort of like a um, pack rat or like a, even like a raven is attracted to whatever shines. Well, other than, and you know, lots of things don't shine because they're in the dark, but they're treasure nonetheless. And so the practices are meant to always remind that you were born as treasure a treasure hunt, um, is a lot of what healing is about, going after the basic treasure bringing it to the surface again and wrapping oneself around with it and using all of its attributes to create, to make friendships and alliances, to heal earth, self, friends, family, and so on. And without it, um, we think that, without the soul, without La Alma in the lead, uh, it essentially is like going forward when having your ankles hobbled together and a blindfold on and earplugs on. And the only thing you can hear is the sort of cacophony of the culture and all the things that it says are most important. Well, one of the reasons I was attracted many, many years ago to Carl Jung's work is one of the first things I read was a book that is not very popular that was written by him. It's called Civilization in Transition, it's volume 10, and I read it in the library when I was a teenager, and I saw that it was about alienation, and I felt that I was surrounded by it, as well as having it, you know, if you could say it's an illness, alienation, that I also had alienation myself, and I thought it was the most brilliant thing I had ever written, because excuse me, I thought it was the most brilliant thing he had ever written, excuse me slips of tongue, it's a good thing I'm not a Freudian
0: because
1: he said that in order to return to the great self, capital S self is how he put it and I understand him to mean that as creator that spark of divine life inside of each of us that one had to leave the collective in other words, one had to in some way for some time turn their back on the popular culture or the subculture that one was raised in and to examine it from the outside and to cut the ties that are not uh, how I would put it uh, that don't feed the root lines of the soul that only feed the ego so it gets bigger and bigger until it you know explodes just from being too big that's the inflation going back down into a deflation again. So for originally when you and I talked about doing this series, I mean, I told you I was interested in teaching other people to help take care of people who are sensitive. That's my word for people who some people call empathic people, who some people call highly intuitive people, because I think that the highly intuitive nature born into everybody is completely misunderstood. And I think that it begins possibly in the family, but for sure it begins in
0: school. Can you explain how how you see it being misunderstood? What's the misunderstanding?
1: Um, The misunderstanding, I think, if I could just give the example of um, kindergarten or grade school, um, you're not allowed to sleep when you're tired. You're not allowed to go toward the things you want to learn. You're not allowed to stand up and yawn or sing or whatever when you feel the spirit moves you and you have to understand that I think um, basically that little children have reason for doing what they're doing for their singing or their sleepiness or their wanting to eat now and in school um, we uh, enter into almost like a chute for cattle I think uh, Montessori school and some Waldorf school being the exceptions, most certainly, but the majority of our culture goes through a process whereby they literally sit through 12 years of being utterly bored and being told to behave themselves. There are some open windows, and especially if there's a gifted teacher from time to time, that makes all the difference in the world during those 12 years. But essentially little free spirits, little children, sweet little children, are being taught to behave and not to use intuition, not to see what they see, not to comfort their little playmates because they see that they're hurt, but now it's time to sit down and do math. Not now is not the time is a you know, very popular saying heard at school. Now is not the time for that. Now is the time for memorizing a sentence is structured and let's just say all that's good mathematics learning how to decline you know a sentence all the rest of is good but unfortunately what's cut out is a child's imagination child's intuition child's impulse to think see go inquire about and to give to other people in other parts of the world because it's all pre-planned you know you get there and you do this and after you do this you do that as adults it's been stunningly beautiful to me to see that as soon as people get out of school whether it's high school or college they never live that way ever again they try very hard not to live in some kind of um, monochromatic way that makes their life seem like there's a metronome playing all the time but instead they begin to feel again the need to create and often they feel it in high school and sometimes drop out of high school because there is no avenue whatsoever for them to create at the level that they want to. And same with college. and Lots of people cannot find what they need there because what they need is so soulful, so intuitive, so highly of the psyche at its depth that it doesn't exist in that school system. So that's what I mean. And today I was at the bookstore and I saw two little children who had apparently gone to a fair and had their faces painted and the uh, one little child was bringing a little book up to the uh, cash register and she's singing all the way up a little song you know when those little nonsense songs that we all sang when we were little You know, and her mother said to her stop that don't run stop jumping walk and you know there was no reason for that child to stop jumping it wasn't unsafe. There weren't other people she was bumping into. There was no reason. But that little child stopped immediately. Stopped singing. Stopped jumping. And still had her little book in her hand, which was very sweet. I hope her mother buys her lots and lots and lots of books. But you, you see, if you look around, you see people saying stop when there's no reason to stop, and they think that that's just idle play. When in fact, who knows why that child is singing? Maybe she's going to be a poet. She's starting to make up rhymes. Maybe she's singing to comfort herself. Maybe she's singing because she's going to be a mother someday, and she's going to sing lullabies and feel confident of her voice because nobody ever told her not to. We don't know what gift she's bringing by doing that. So just at those very basic levels is where I would say many people were cut off. And I'm sure some people would like to sloth that off and say oh well it's not important i mean look you know people need discipline yes they do people need to be socialized yes they do but not be broken there's no point in breaking you can teach people without breaking them and so mother night is a six-part series that is geared toward helping people remember what the elementals are that they were born with, the divine ones that they're born with, the gifted ones that they're born with, ways of looking at what they've lost, if anything, but certainly also looking at other people so they can help other people, too, and understand other people who may have lost a great deal or who may still be intact, and they kind of seem very odd because they're still intact, and that really is true, that... The more intact a person is intuitively, the more odd they may look in their culture, because their culture doesn't hold that in esteem particularly. So the curanderismo, uh, as well as other aspects that we're going to look at during that time, are all geared toward understanding and reconvening, uh, restituting those things that are lost, and teaching people about them in themselves and as well as in others as well. And I think that the um, throwing off of over-acculturation as our first session is incredibly important. Um, We have um, several ideas of what we're going to do during that time that are going to be um, talking about walking into a world. And I chose the archetype of the medial woman to start out with because the medial woman is one of the areas that's been written about somewhat in Tony Wolfe's work, who was a Jungian analyst back in the day, and who left a wonderful, very short essay, just a few pages long, that included the idea of the woman who can see in the dark. She didn't put it that way, but she's talking about women who are highly intuitive, who have more in common with Sabelle and... Ruach and Sophia, the archetypal beings who are the ones who carry memory, who are helper healers, who are seers, S-E-E-R-S, who are blessers of others. They bless others into health, bless others into creative life. They bless other people into finding their way. And who carry a sight that is uncanny. And that belongs to everyone. Men, women, children, everyone. And I would add, frankly, dogs, cats, birds, also. I have noticed that um, a lot of people want to call it animal, that it's just an animal thing. Um, When the big tsunami hit in the part of Asia um, three, four years ago, and literally hundreds of thousands of people's lives were lost, Um, people reported who had survived afterward reported that the birds all flew inland before the tsunami even happened. Uh, Something that is knowing even in creatures and maybe especially in creatures and there's no reason why those things wouldn't be in humans as
0: well. Now you mentioned this idea of over-acculturation and how we have to uh, break free of that to discover our full you know, intuitive selves and our, our, our full creativity. And I'm wondering if you can give me some examples of where you've seen people uh, stuck or struggling with acculturation, and then how they got through it and what it looked like.
1: You know, I, I would, um, this is what I would tell you, just, just to try to open up a line of consciousness. Most of us are not aware at all at how overacculturated we are. Most of us just take for granted that we live in a house with square walls and we wear certain kinds of clothing, such as is available in the store, and we, you know, have certain holidays, you know, national holidays, for instance, that we all celebrate and that we, you know, we all go to church uh, or temple or satsang or whatever it is we go to, and that all of those are like sort of normal, but they're actually not. Um, The culture... Tells us essentially what we will eat for many, many years before a person usually wakes up somewhere along the line and says, you know, this might not be the best thing for me. Tells us what we should laugh at. Tells us what kind of music we should buy. Um, used to be much more so when music was only introduced to us via radio and via payola and other schemes that people had about suppressing certain musics and playing only certain other kinds of music. It, the overculture tells us how to behave socially without consulting us just says this is how you behave this is how far you stand from someone this is what you how you sit with someone this is how you walk with someone this is what you say to someone that you know this is what you never say to someone you know this is what you say to strangers this is what you never say to strangers and so forth laws the laws of the land are also they're given to us we don't usually have a great deal to say about the laws that have been written before we were born but they dominate us, nonetheless, whatever they are, whether they're about um, how you should. Recently is an article about uh, very young people who have had sex with one another being identified as sexual predators by the law, when in fact they're two people who are very much like any two people who are young who had sex with each other, but somehow because of the laws of the state that they lived in, they were dragged before the court. There's um, our ancient dramas that we used to practice. Almost none of them are present any longer. Most all of them have been replaced by national dramas, such as Independence Day, such as um, Halloween, for instance, which is a tatter left from the old holy sacrament that it used to be long ago. we have um, ways that we're supposed to act psychologically, things we're supposed to accept in terms of what other people do or say to us in employment, for instance. We have um, the religion is almost all clear-cut for us, all written down, and wherever it started, it now is elaborated. If Christ is only, I think he's um, 20 pages or less of dialogue in the New Testament, but the Church law that has been written since him about what is and what isn't, who should and who shouldn't, is literally volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes. So most all of us uh, no longer have the artifacts that our ancestors had that tie us to the soul. I mean, I'm looking at the shirt I've got on, which I'm pretty sure is made of cotton, and I'm looking at my socks that I have on, which are probably made of, I don't know, um, nylon, polyester, something like that. And I'm thinking, you know, not even what we call the trajes típicas, not even the, your clothing any longer represents anything sacred for you. You have to stick something on your clothing to remember. Like I wear the talisman of the sacred heart and wear a little red embroidered sacred heart on my shirt every day. And it's pinned on with a little angel pin who's with, with carrying a little red heart in her hand. And that is, a, but I have to add that to my clothing. It doesn't come from my culture. The, the over-culture is not the place where the soul will be fed. It just isn't. Um, a person has to make additions, has to bring other ideas in. So the work that you have brought into being, Tammy, through Sounds True, like one of the things that you've um, been interested in is a work that has meaning for people, what people sometimes call, Buddhists call, right livelihood that's an addition to the culture that's actually going away from the collective and saying in order for me to be whole I have to follow this other premise that comes out of the soul or out of the deeper sense of self than what the culture tells me which is that I should probably do just about anything at any price in order to make the most amount of whatever you know peanuts I can make and that doesn't work for the soul that only makes the soul you might say um like lethargic and distant Um, same thing with language Um, there's a lot of people who say we can't use certain language in our culture we're not supposed to use the language of soul for instance so when I sat on the state grievance board and was the chair of that board for several years I would often talk about the soul with regard to people who were being grieved against and the damage that some of them had done to their patients and at first the other members of the board who were mostly lawyers look at me as though I had grown flowers out of my ears. But eventually, they became used to it. And they sometimes themselves, after a couple of years, would start talking about, well, the soul of the matter might really be this, whereas the legal part of the matter is that. In other words, they were learning, too, to not speak only in terms of the collective culture, saying the collective culture had the final say-so, but that there were other considerations, too. So those are just a couple of the issues. I think uh, diet is another one that certainly often comes um, up for people, especially if they've been ill and they realize by doing some research or talking to people that literally they've been taking in too much poison and that the poison has been packaged in happy packaging with lots of colorful pictures on the front. and all kinds of crinkly, snappy, crunchy things inside (laughs) that taste really good because they're larded with salt and with sugar. And they realize that how they feel physically when they eat food like that also has something to do with the clarity of the soul, that it is very hard to see and think and feel deeply when you're lethargic as a result of an overabundance of really rotten, processed food. So, these, like I said, there, there's a part of our culture that poo-poo's all this. That says, oh no, no, you know, nothing's going to hurt anybody. Everybody should eat, you know, all the garbage that they want to. And then, what does the soul have to do with anything anyway? And you know, these are the legal uh, precedents that have been set, and those are the only ones we're going to follow. And that people should work hard because we need more workers, worker bees in this world. No, we don't. The fact is we don't we have to leave those collective ideas and explore other ideas and that's what mother night series is about is looking for how we shall live in a way that's meaningful to us whether the culture approves or not and my dad is from the old country He's from a very tiny farm village of 45 families in the south of hungary right above yugoslavia the uh, former yugoslavia uh, he was a farmer until he was a very young little boy and then he was sent away to apprentice as a tailor in a village far away from his mother and his sisters and his brothers and he had a hard life he had a father who used to come home from his work as a um, cabinet maker far away because there wasn't enough work in the village you know and do like people do today the men go far away thousands of miles sometimes to work leaving the women and the children at home. But anyway, every time his dad would come home for some reason, he'd take it out on my father, and he would beat him up. And his mother sent him away to try to preserve him. And so he sent away at too young an age. So he, he, I think, knew a lot about harshness of life and what it's like to be without love, also, and comfort of your own you know, mother, for instance. And yet he had this saying that he said that took him through life pretty well. And frankly, I don't believe any of us can live it all the time, including him. But it's a wonderful touchstone to keep returning to. He said, you might as well be who you are, because half the world won't like it anyway. You might as well be who you are, because half the world won't like it anyway. Meaning that if you do everything just right, the way the culture says, because whoever said whoever, that half the world won't like you period. They won't. Certainly, the people who are rooted in meaning are going to pass you by as superficial and shallow. On the other hand, if you be as you are, to the depth that you are, half the world is not going to like you anyway either. So you might as well. You might as well, cho- <laughs> you might as well choose to be the odd, unusual, strange people that we are. Um, a few weeks ago when I was talking to you he said and I quote because I wrote it down
0: you're scaring me now
1: I have the path of the freak <laughs> I'm the head freak that's what you wrote that's what you said to me and I thought you couldn't say a more blessed thing about yourself and I'm serious I know that the terminology freak and um, you know weirdo and all all of those bad words um, are used to denigrate people but actually They mean a person who stands outside the usual. They mean a person who thinks for themselves and has such a vision that is so unique to them that it's not replicated by every other person. It just isn't. They're not a duplicate. They're an original. And I believe that every soul on this earth was born as an original.
0: Now, Clarissa, implicit in what you're saying, I think, and and I just would like you to make it more explicit to me is this idea if we throw off the over acculturation if we you know fly our freak flag whatever using my language <laughs> that uh, this will then I like that. <laughs> open up certain capacities or our instincts will be intact and this idea of learning to see in the dark or knowing what's happening around the corner etc that somehow we'll have these capacities that's the connection you're making?
1: Right well I think the sense would be this way would you like to be able to understand (laughs) all the unconscious things that keep rising up for you the quirks of personality the night dreams the parts of your psyche that seem to know things without knowing them even though you might say to yourself no no i must have just imagined that do you want to have that kind of richness in your life that's actually your companion and your helper in life or do you want to turn away from it and leave this huge enormous bounty of treasure all by itself in your own psyche and never develop it that to me is the thing if I think about the writing that I've done I most often write according to what I'm told or hear or sense in the ether you might say in the air but also in my body and my soul I don't believe that I could keep my sense of selfhood as buried deeply into soul life if i were to take the temptations that sometimes come by to do things that aren't warranted aren't summoned by and aren't certified by the soul and i try very hard to measure and to see which is which because it um, literally costs way too much to be involved with things that aren't certified by the soul. One of the reasons I don't drink alcohol and I don't do uh, recreational drugs, as it's called, is because my soul absolutely will not agree with the condition that those leave me in, which definitely occlude vision Sensitivity, insight, and perception. I, you and I have joked, and I know, you know, I, because I grew up in the time when people were taking LSD, for instance, and um, psilocybe mushrooms, and so on. And people tried very hard to convince me that I should try those, and I would always say to them, "No, no, you don't understand. I see all the time." I see the depth of things and the almost unbearable beauty that can be in any given thing all the time. If you told me I should take a drug so that I can learn to keep my death clean, I might really consider it, because that's where my deficit is, is in living you know, in the very um, petty, mundane world of finding my house keys and keeping my shoes tight, and so on and so forth. And I manage, I've learned to manage that. But I personally feel strongly that alcohol, drugs, and certain foods should not be ingested by people because it occludes their ability to sensitively receive the messages that are being sent to them in their consciousness from what we might call the unconscious or the dark that they are not as alive, aware, awake as they can be, and as they're gifted to be. I, every person I've ever spoken with who is a great creator, I'm thinking of Sherman Alexie, the poet, and he's, uh, I think he's, um, I know, let's see, partner Paris, I think, or I'm thinking about Annie Leibovitz, or I'm thinking about Jesse Norman, the coloratura soprano. Maya Angelou, any person I've met who has had profound depth as well as being able in some way to represent it outwardly to others in a way that touches them, helps them, teaches them, heals them, uh, delights them, raises them up in some way, has had a history of wrong turns, haven't we all? my God but also then has had a history of exploration of what does not show above ground and has started making the turns that literally make them pour out with whatever their gifts are toward others so that others can be lifted and can learn also i've never met a person who has not made wrong turns I Haven't. in fact i would venture that gifted people make bigger badder wrong turns (laughs) than just the average rubber plant does yes still there is a lot to be learned from those wrong turns and what there is to learn about them often stands in the dark as a result of shaming and cultural judgments on whatever it is that they've done and so on and so forth but there's great learning to be had from those wrong turns and it's usually posited in the dark where it's been under great pressure over long periods of time in the dark, and you know what that makes. You know, From coal, it makes diamonds. And a lot of people have rough diamonds as a result of their sufferings in life, but because maybe there was shame or regret of a large degree associated with it, they have never brought it up and polished it and seen what there is to see about it, and more so what there is to share with others about it, too. So I think that Mother Night is a program that will help people to mine the mother load, so to speak, to bring the diamonds information up out of the dark and to polish those attributes. And there'll be different ones for different people. But certainly one of them is creative flow, creative work, and whether that means problem solving with your family or figuring out how to live till tomorrow or making a great project of some sort or a small project that has great meaning. Those will be decided by the individuals but the most important thing is to free the soul from any of its bindings and from any of its wanderings and to reseed it properly in the psyche and i believe that that cannot be done on the
0: surface it has
1: you have to go down underneath to do that
0: diamonds from the darkness thank you clarissa
1: well thank you tell thank you for having (laughs) Oh, <laughs> it's really good to be with you. We've got to do this more often than 22 years, though, don't you think?
0: Yeah, I think we'll, we'll increase the frequency. All
1: right, all right. Well, I welcome all the people who are interested to come be with me and with Mother Night for our sixth session series. And I have some wonderful stories to tell, like the Earl King and about Tiresias. The Earl King is about a spirit who is actually following a father and his child and their horse through the forest at night and what happens there. And I'll be talking about many, many things that are stories straight up out of the dark that are illuminating.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. This program has been brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Please visit us at SoundsTrue.com and experience our award-winning audio programs for yourself. Programs that embrace the world's major spiritual traditions, as well as the arts and humanities, embodied by the leading authors, teachers, and visionary artists of our time. With every title... We strive to preserve the essential living wisdom of the author, artist, or spiritual teacher. Not only will you receive information, but you will receive the essential quality of a wisdom transmission between a teacher and a student. Many Voices, One Journey. Soundstrue.com.